Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have, for me... Uh, a very special episode where I get to interview my very, very good friend, Gregory Hicks, that I have not seen in a very long time. Uh, Greg and I went to grad school together. He played the French horn, but now it's just the horn, and I played the trumpet, as you all know. <laughs> and so uh, we've stayed in touch over the years, various alumni events and friends' bachelor parties and things like that. We've been able to see each other, and Greg, I feel, has an interesting story to his life and how he ended up where he ended up. And I thought it would make a great podcast episode for everybody to hear. So I think the first, actually, I lied to you earlier. I think the first thing we should do is say who you are and like what you do to give context there. And then we'll back up. That might be a good place to start. Okay. So first of all, thank you for being here on Zoom. Of course. Yeah, this is like episode, I don't know how many you've done by now, like almost 70 or something. I think you will be episode... You might be episode 70, actually. Yeah. yeah you're killing it, man. Yeah, um, well, thank you. So who are you? What do you do? Who is your daddy and what does he what do? What does he do? <laughs> um, so I work for, I currently work for the San Francisco Symphony as their artist liaison. Um, it always feels weird to say that now since we aren't doing anything for the last couple of months, but that is my current job title with the symphony. Um, essentially, I help facilitate um, all the guest artists um, moving in and out of Davis Hall every week. I help manage all the travel, logistics, that kind of stuff. And then the real part of the job is when the artists are here, I am, I take care of them. So I drive them around. I make sure the dressing rooms are okay. And I take them to dinners, make sure they get on stage, make sure they're dressed, all that kind of stuff. So that they don't have to really think about anything except doing what they do, which is their art. Um, yeah. uh, let's see, maybe a little bit more before... This job, I was the manager of artistic operations for the Grand Teton Music Festival uh, for two years. So I was living in Jackson Hole um, for the lot previous two years before I moved to San Francisco. Um, and before that, I was in Chicago playing in Civic and working at a wine bar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you've kind of... You seem to be a, a, a man of many different interests <laughs> besides music and tastes and culture yeah. so it's awesome yeah you've been able to yeah. sort of explore that so you're hanging out i mean it's san francisco symphony so you're hanging out with like the top artists and stuff like that yeah i mean um i, I will say that so uh, our mutual friend of ours audra loveland uh who also studied horn at northwestern um had this job previous to me and um so when i was living in jackson hole she was uh, in San Francisco, doing this job, working for the symphony. And um, I would see all of these posts that she was making about like the stuff she was doing, the people she was meeting. And I was like, I wanted, I wanted to get back to California. I was like, I love this orchestra. I like, I want to work for that orchestra. And then lo and behold, like a year or two later, she got promoted to a different department. She was like, Hey, Greg, this position's going to be open. Like, if you're still interested, I think you should come out here. Um, and I will say that like, I have, in the, my short 19, 20 months that I've worked here, have gotten to interact with, like, as you say, like the absolute top T 
tier artists, but also like the people who live in San Francisco who come to the symphony and care about the symphony. Um, it's incredible. The people I've met backstage who just sort of like wander back, um, like Sting, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> um, some other tech people. And um, it, it's it's been a very sort of like fascinating experience. And I, I, I've i really in the last year and a half, like come to like adore this place and these orchestra and this community. And yeah, it's, it's turned out to be, I mean, I never, I wasn't like, I doubted it, but it's really turned out to be like a, a spectacular place to work. And yeah, yeah I, this is not the crux or the, the focus of this episode, but no, what, like, what's like, obviously you're trained as a horn player. Yeah. So this is artistic management, you know? Yeah. So Oftentimes, I think we think you have to sort of go this route of getting a business degree or like going in that way. And then you sort of like settle down for artistic management right. as opposed to like where it could go and from the business world. So right. what are the qualifications that are necessary that allowed you as as a trained like a horn player in performance, you know, to right. be able to be competitive for this job? Well, I think what's interesting is that it it wasn't and we'll get you know, we'll talk about this in more depth later, but like, it wasn't something like there was no switch to like, Oh, I'm not playing horn anymore. Like better transition. It was just, it was like such a slow process of like realizing that like, maybe I wasn't going to be a horn player. And like, how can I start sort of like inching my way in other directions that like keep me in this family, this like artistic musical family. But so I think working in the Tetons, because um, I was their stage manager for five summers right. while I was living in Chicago. So that gave me a ton of experience um, working on the other side of the stage door, as it were. Um, and then, you know, they, I grew to know that sort of like community. And so they were really interested in having me come out there full time. And that's when I like made that decision. So I don't think that, I mean, I do, I have, there are a lot of people who work at the symphony who have degrees in artist or in arts management, arts administration, but I think it's a crazy high number, like 80 or 90 percent of the 100, 120 staff members at the symphony went to music school, like mm. went, have like performance degrees or musicology degrees or music history or, you know, it's a really sort of. Which is which is great, because uh, in some other places I've worked, there's only one other place I've worked, um, there was only one person on that staff who went to music school. So to be able to like work with, you know, the people in publications, the people in marketing, the people in operations, like, you know, they all went to music. It's crazy. It's so awesome that these people are, you know, they can all approach this thing from different angles from their like job, but they all are still like musicians working on this one thing. So it's a very yeah, and interesting. I, I think it's, it's interesting because the rap, I think that can sometimes happen with management and boards is that they don't care. They don't get it. They don't know what it's like to be a musician or what the struggle is like or anything like right. that. So to have people who are qualified to do these managerial type positions, but to have a, a or a lot of love for right. um, what it is to be a musician because they themselves went through it, I think creates a different level of engagement probably and, and right. caring basically. Exactly. If you're always looking through that lens, you know, there's like, we have a nine person artistic department um, and they like do chamber music stuff. They'll like read chamber music as a department. Cause there's like a clarinetist and a cellist and two pianists. And it's like a fun thing they do on the side. I don't know. I just think that's, I think that's really, really cool. Cause as yeah. you say, you get, they're always looking at it through that lens of like a performer, but also like I have these other skills that 
you know, allow this organization to function. But yeah. Anyway, I think the other thing really quickly is that um, the I've been really uh, surprised, maybe not surprised, but impressed by the community of the actual orchestra, the players. Um, I feel like we always hear about orchestra politics and stuff. And of course, there's some of that stuff is, exists here, but it's for the most part, like a very supportive, engaged um, group of musicians that's become really, really fantastic to work with. And they feel like family. And anyway, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful work environment. So. That's awesome. Yeah. I've that's heard, yeah. I've heard stories of, from friends, obviously we have a f- few friends that are in the orchestra and just sounds like a great place all around to be related to yeah. music, you know? So that's, totally. um, happy for you that you landed there. And I think going back to your, we don't have to spend a long time doing it, but just to give some perspective of where you came from, your education, kind of what your, your, I mean, we'll talk about it. I'll ask questions, but just sort of what your guiding light was through all of that, you yeah. know, and what you were hoping to get, uh, when you f- sort of finished or came through your education, just some, for right. some grounding background. Yeah. Um, sorry, my cat is playing something on the floor. If you're hearing that. Rufio. Um, Rufio. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. So I, uh, how far back do we go here with my education? That's just, un- yeah, undergrad and grad school. Yeah. Stuff. So I went to, um, well, when I was applying to undergrads, I applied to nine schools. Um, I made the decision that I didn't want to go to conservatory. Um, when I was a junior in high school, my parents took me on like an East coast trip and we, you know, went to, can you hear that in the background? <laughs> do you want me to go get it out of the way? I don't know. It's up to you if you think it's going to persist. <laughs> I don't know. He's getting bored. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, well, I went to New England Conservatory, Juilliard, Manhattan, Eastman. Um, uh, you know what? <laughs> just, like, just like two No problem. We can edit that. We can edit it. <laughs> hey. Anyway, so we went on like, like we, uh, we went on a trip and saw like a bunch of conservatories. And I realized after that trip that I, I remember going to Juilliard and sitting in on like a humanities class to like observe. And I remember just thinking like, this isn't, it wasn't going to be well-rounded enough for me. Cause they were like, this is the humanities class that you take. There's no like other options. You can't Mm. take a class on geography or whatever. Um, And I just decided I wanted to go to a university instead where I could get access to that. Um, So I applied to like nine schools, got into seven or eight of them didn't get into Northwestern, never let Gail live that down. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up going to UCLA, uh, and getting a degree in horn performance. Um, I studied with several teachers there. Um, when I started, I was with Brian O'Connor, who was like one of the top studio players. Um, we don't really have to get into it that much cause it's a whole other episode, I think, but he and I did not, um, get along super well. Um, his teaching style and we just never quite could figure things out. Um, so my junior year, no, my senior year, I studied with Pat Sheridan, um, the, who was the tuba teacher at the time. Um, and then some things happened. I ended up staying at UCLA for another year. And I, that was when I met Chris Cooper, um, who would come in to teach. So I was studying with Chris, who now I see, you know, almost every day at San Francisco Symphony because he's yeah. uh, one of their, like, main substitute horn players. Uh, and Chris was the one who really pushed me to leave UCLA and expand my 
porn world. Um, yeah. So then I, I left UCLA after one year of grad school. Uh, I think technically I can still go back if I want. I just like paused my degree. <laughs> um, I haven't even thought about that in a long time. Uh, and then I went and did two years at Northwestern with Gail Williams. And that's where we became best friends. That's where we became absolute best friends. And my perception is that you, I mean, you were interested in similar things that we were. You were trying to figure out, you know, excerpts and playing better and all that stuff to hopefully get a job performing, doing that right. kind of, doing that grind or whatever. Would would you say that's accurate? That is accurate. I think it was an interesting experience being at UCLA. I don't, like, I, I loved, you know, what I learned there. I think they do have a great music school. It's a very different environment than a place like Northwestern. I mean, Northwestern is, you know, one of the best university music schools in the country. UCLA is one of the best schools in the country, and their music department is small um, and excels in some places. But it's, just, I mean, there's just no way around it. It's not at the same level, really. So when I got there, without sounding like too much of a, you know, I was definitely like the sort of like big fish in a small pond. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I was a freshman and was like playing principal in the orchestra. And um, I, <laughs> there was not really a community of sort of like buzz about like, let's play for each other. Let's play excerpts. Let's work on stuff together. Like what auditions are you taking? What are you going toward? Like, where do you want to go to school? There was not, it wasn't a bad thing. I just, I hadn't been exposed to that sort of like environment, not of like yeah. the pressure cooker environment, but also the like support right, of right. like a community of horn trumpet trauma players. Like, Oh dude, you're taking that. I'm also taking that. Like, let's play for each other. That kind of, sure. I didn't have that. Um, which I think is another reason that Chris Cooper was like, dude, you're, you're better than here. You should, you should get out of here. And so like my getting to Northwestern, I mean, it's like, oh, that's all it was. It was like, not only was the music school way bigger, the studios were bigger, you know, there's three or four teachers for some studios. And um, it was such a, a shift in like, sort of like, well, what are you going to do after grad school, man? You got to win an audition. Like, you got to right, go, go, right. go. Like, you know, it's like, well, ugh. Yeah, right. Yeah. But the other thing for me was that I, I felt like, Every time I like had sort of like a roadblock with horn, um, like I would be close to being like, you know what? It's maybe it's not for me. Maybe this isn't the career that I, you know, like what have I done? And then like something would happen and I would like get that next step. Like I got into Northwestern. I only applied to Northwestern for grad school. I didn't apply anywhere else. And I got in and I was like, well, shoot, I guess, yeah, okay, maybe I, like, maybe I do have something, like, I should go on to the next step, and, like, you know, it's the place I wanted to go for undergrad, and I didn't get in, and I was going to go, and I was going with, you know, one of my best friends, Will Baker, and we had some other UCLA friends who had just uh, gone, Logan Chopic. do you know Logan? You know Logan. I know of, I've met him, like, a few times at Evans. That's right, at Evans. So he had just, (laughs) like, come from UCLA, was at Northwestern, couldn't say enough. And then... You know, like after school, thinking like, oh, I don't, do I really want to like be taking auditions? All my friends are advancing. I'm not doing anything. And then like, oh, I got into Civic as a full-time member. And I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's like it just kept sort of like right. inching along. But I think at a certain point, I was just like, well, obviously the injury happened twice and we're going to get to that. But 
at a certain point, I was just seeing all of my friends, like, and colleagues, including you, like, people who were just, like, who just had that, like, that thing, that, like, unbelievable drive. And I was like, I have that, but I don't know if it's for Horn. And, like, watching all of my friends succeed really well, like, not that long after school. And I was, like, struggling to, you know get through civic rehearsals and like asking Dan Gingrich to make sure he puts me on third or fourth horn so that I don't have to like be exposed. I was like, this isn't, this isn't, yeah. this isn't where I should be right now. You know? Yeah. I, but anyway. I mean, it's interesting for me. The drive was totally identity and worth based. I, I've, I like totally understand this about myself now that right. I identified with like being a part of our friend group where we were like, really good at what we did and people saw that and they were like oh awesome and i just sort of made this connection in my brain without someone telling me that it was real that you have these friends because you play the trumpet well right not because they enjoy hanging out with you and they right. tolerate they tolerate you <laughs> you know like <laughs> right right <laughs> it's it's weird and so yeah i start i like achieved because i thought that was my way into people like caring about who I was essentially. Totally. Yeah. And so it's interesting to step away now and realize I have all of that drive, but to put it into something that I feel like is actually what I'm meant to do and right. actually supposed to do is an interesting feeling because it's the same exact thing except for I like feel fulfilled doing it rather than right. like I just got to grind to the next thing. So I appreciate you giving some background. You talked about the injury. We could probably just get into it. Um, yeah. Just why don't you just kind of go on a spiel, explain what it's, how it started, what it felt like, what it turned into, and what it meant yeah. for your career. Um, so, I mean, some background. So, I mean, as like a as a horn player, I I was I guess I would say like like a pretty natural player. Um, I started actually playing trumpet in fifth grade, and then switched in seventh grade to playing horn and. Um, it just kind of came naturally to me. Um, I did have, and this, I actually don't know. I actually really haven't really thought about if this played any part in the future injury. But when I was in youth orchestra, um, like junior, senior year of high school, um, our uh, music director was um, polarizing, we'll say. Um, and I, I, I didn't love the way that he conducted. He instilled a lot of fear in especially in brass players, mostly horn player, um, in like, if you chipped a note with the whole orchestra would stop and they would know that we were stopping because you had chipped a note. And so like, I know it's like, first of all, we're in high school, dude. Like, and second <laughs> of all, it, we're horn players, man. Like, give me a break. Um, but I remember distinctly we were, I was playing principal on Shasti five as a junior in high school. Um, and like, really struggling with some of that stuff because I was so afraid of causing a disruption, you know, like if I'm chipping the high B in a solo, like I'm going to get like an eye roll and we might have to stop. It was just like, so that sort of like fear built in, I developed what is called Valsalva maneuver. Do you know Valsalva? Yeah. 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 Basically where like your intercostal muscles lock up against your throat muscles and you create like pressure between the two and you can't, release the air. And so it's incredibly useful when deadlifting, <laughs> but it's not great. As it's a true. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like a thing that you, you can do and it can be useful. But like, if you're trying to like release air 
at yeah. the right time. I mean, you know, all these, you know, but I had, ne- I had never heard it named until I went and had a lesson with Bill Vermeulen at Rice. The only time I've ever met Bill Vermeulen. Um, he didn't really care for me and I didn't really care for him, but he was like, you know, in the, one of the first thing he was like, okay, play for me. So I played Strauss one. I couldn't get the first note out. I couldn't start the first note of Strauss one. And so we spent the whole lesson talking about like, why are you trying to breath attack the beginning of Strauss one? You should just, you know what I mean? It's like one of the most heroic openings. And I was like, ha, he, and then once it's going, it's fine. You know, I mean, you know, this works, but it was like, so I, I remember that was my first real experience with like having an issue and having to like find a way around it. And, um, the way around it initially was I would just breath attack. Um, mm. so there was never any like chance for the pressure to build up behind your tongue. Um, and I remember playing an honor orchestra, I think senior year, I think Karen Keltner was a conductor and we were playing Carmen or something. We're in the weeds here, but that's what we're doing. Um, and she, uh, there's like a, there was like a little solo and I like hesitated a little bit and she was so awesome at the break. She came back, she talked to me and she was like, is everything okay? Was I not clear? And I was like, no, 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 it's not you. I just, she was like, oh, okay, that's totally fine. I will hold this as long as you need. And when you're ready, just look at me and we're coming in. And I was like, okay. And it was like, absolutely no issue, but just like removing that little, like, like veil of fear. She was like, this isn't. There's nothing scary here. Like, I'm with you. This is your solo. We do this together. And she was great. So then I started having these, like, okay, well, maybe I don't have to breath attack. I can just, like, shift focus. Or, you know, there's the old technique of, like, if you subdivide, like, and then you come in. Like, there's no, it, like, removes that sort of hesitation. Um, So that, I think, was my first sort of, like, experience with, again, with some sort of, like, serious hiccup in my playing and having to hurdle around it or over it or whatever. Um, when I started at UCLA, I, um, had a good couple of years. Um, I mean, they were all good years, but (laughs) it was my senior year. Um, I was applying to grad schools. I applied to a lot. Um, I applied to Juilliard. I wanted to maybe work with Julie Landsman. I don't know. Um, I really wanted to work with Michelle Baker at Manhattan School of Music. I had applied to Northwestern. Um, I applied to BU. It doesn't matter. But um, I had applied to a bunch of schools. And so now I had this sort of, this was in the fall. I had this like thing out in front of me that was in January and February, you know, when I was going to be flying all over the country to take auditions. And so uh, this was also the time that I was studying with Pat Sheridan. So the horn teacher and I were not even really speaking. Um, that being said, Pat is, I don't, do you know Pat? I mean, you know of him, but maybe. I know of him. I don't know him yeah, personally, yeah. no. Um, to this day, I still consider like one of the best mentors I've ever had. Um, just absolutely world-class musician and human being. Um, but also just like no bullshit. Like really, really like straight shooter with like when you're playing for him and he's talking to you, but he's also like funny and he's just, just all around like great guy. And I used to have people ask me like, how are you, how are you a horn player getting ready for auditions? And you're like studying with a tuba player. And I was like, you know what? It's kind of nice because we don't talk about like horn BS. Like we talk, we're, I'm playing Strauss too. And he's just like, 
let's talk about music. Like, let's be musical about everything. Cause that's, and it's not like he doesn't have like things that could relate, you know, to horn brass playing, but it was so music focused. It was great. Right. Um, but as you know, it was like November, December, um, I was like really struggling. Oh, it wasn't Strasbourg, it was Schumann, Adagio, and Allegro. And I remember just thinking like, I was practicing so much and I was like slowly noticing that I was getting worse. And that, I think that is one of the main issues with this injury. I don't know what we're gonna, injury, it's not a disease, it's, we'll call it injury for now, yeah. That's one of the main things is that there is no like light switch moment. It doesn't just, you wake up one morning and all of a sudden, like, you know, you can't sustain a whole note. It's just, it's so slow. It's like yeah. the frog in boiling water. You just don't, you don't notice that these things are creeping in. Um, and so I, um, I remember at one point, you know, and I would play for Pat and he was like, what's going on here? There's something happening. You're doing something different. And we kept sort of like getting closer and closer and closer to it. Um, and this was like maybe the first week back in January. I had like two weeks until my Juilliard audition or three weeks or something. And so I had been gone over winter break and practiced and I was coming back in and um, it had gotten to the point where I was feeling so bad about my playing that I just kept thinking like, maybe I need rest if I take time. So I would take a weekend off. And then of course, like not practicing, not working on something you know, you realize quickly that, well, it's not rest. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't, you know, hmm. you come back and you pick up horn. It was exactly the same issues. Like nothing had changed. So then you start taking longer breaks. You practice less. You, I started to be like embarrassed to play in front of people. Here I am like about to have the biggest auditions of my life and I can't finish, you know, the, the opening of Adagio and Allegro. Um, and so you really like starts to spiral mentally as well. Sure. Because you're like, you know, you're practicing less, which means your endurance is going to go down no matter what. And then, you know, everything just sort of like piles on. So there was this one lesson in January with Pat where um, I, he was like, what's, you know, we were talking about issues and I was telling him that like, yeah, you know, when I play this one, a whole note here, my uh, amateur, I'm feeling like it's like twisting. It's like tightening in the corner. And it actually was opening the embouchure. So there was like air leaking out. And he was mm-hmm. like, okay. And he was like, play, play this part for me. Played it. Thing happened again. It like locked up. Air leaked out. And the embouchure like tightened up. And then the note stopped. So we did that a couple times. And he literally was like, um, hold, hang tight. I'm going to step outside and go make a phone call. And I was like, what? <laughs> so he left the lesson. Went outside. <laughs> called Jan Kagarice who's, you know, it was the bass hormone teacher at um, University of North Texas, who I didn't know from, you know, from Eve at the time, um, who also happens to be one of the only real people who works on brass players of vocal dystonia. Um, so he recognized it, like, right away, this, like, yeah. me describing this thing to him. And also recognized, I think, the sign of a good teacher when he was like, okay, this is beyond my ability, but I want to put you in the hands of who I think is the best. Um, and so he came back in and, uh, we didn't, I didn't play anymore for that lesson. We talked, um, we just kind of like hung out and 
he was like, okay, so what I did is I, I called Jan. I set you up with her. You're going to have a phone call with her in a couple of days. She's going to call you um, and just see what happens. Just talk to her. I mean, he obviously gave you some context. We did not talk about what she specializes in. He didn't name the thing because he wasn't sure. He just wanted me to talk to this woman who's basically an expert in this field. Um, so I didn't play for a couple of days. And then I had this phone call with Jan um, and we talked for almost two hours and we did a couple little sort of like experiments over the phone. She was like, do you have a piano there? And I was like sitting at, at the piano. She had me do some stuff on piano and I don't know how far into this you want to get like the super detailed stuff, but it was like the punchline was that after this conversation, she basically, she told me, she was like, okay, let me describe what I think has happened to you. And you just say yes or no. You don't tell me anything about your story, about your situation. And she just like went down this list of basically everything that I just told you were like, things start happening, you practice less, you feel this way, your brain does this, and then the consequence is this. And it was the first time in like six months, because over this time, you know, I've been telling people about, I'm like, I got stuff going on, I can't really describe it. And everyone always said the same thing, just take time off, you'll be fine. It was the first time somebody had like legit known exactly what was happening. And so for me, it was like, okay, again, here's a way out. This woman knows what's happened. And at the end of that conversation, she was like, I need you to say something. Repeat after me. I have focal task specific dystonia and there is a way to fix it. So I was like, oh shit, okay. Um, So then um, she gave me some stuff to do. Uh, Also, I should point out that like her wait list was like very long for people to come work with her. And she basically told me, she was like, I'm, I'm breaking my wait list because I adore Pat Sheridan and I want to help you. So wow. she was like, she was like, you're going to fly out and see me in three weeks. Um, and we're going to, we're going to fix this. So at this point I canceled all of my grad school auditions. That was one of the first things she said. She said, eliminate everything on the horizon, everything drop out of ensembles, Talk to all your conductors, professors, tell everybody, be honest, tell them what's going on um, and get out of everything. We had a brass quintet called the Mantet with Will Baker. <laughs> um, so we had to cancel all of our little gigs that we had, um, cancel all my, <laughs> canceled all of my uh, auditions, dropped out of orchestra, went ensemble, all that stuff. Um, so that there's no sort of pressure for you to have to, to do anything to, to cope because I was still at this time, you know, still playing an orchestra. I was playing principal in orchestra and playing in wind, wind ensemble. And every, every rehearsal was sort of like a, how am I going to survive this? Yeah. Not the like, how am I going to be the best horn player? It was like, how am I going to not bring attention to myself? How am I going to not uh, embarrass myself? And that's like such a terrible headspace <laughs> to have when you're playing your instrument. Yeah. So, that was her big thing was like, eliminate everything off your horizon so you can just focus on this. Yeah, at the time when we were at Northwestern, I had no idea that you had gone through any of this. I actually, like we were saying, I found out just a few years ago when we were uh, in New Orleans. So it was shocking to me, or maybe I knew that you had had some sort of injury, but I didn't know it was 
quite as serious as it was yeah. in the past. And so you obviously right. were able to recover to an extent to be able to like get through grad school and have great performances. And we didn't yeah. know, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's something I did want to make sure we talked about today was like, especially when I was in undergrad going through this the first time, cause I went through it twice. Um, the like sort of taboo <clears throat> in talking about, um, an injury in the brass world that is not physical. You know, there's no, there's no physical issues that are happening, right? So there's nothing wrong with the muscles, there's nothing wrong with the nerves. It's entirely like a neurological connection to the nerves. It's about the neural pathway that you've created. Um, and I think because it, this injury has this reputation as being in your head, I think most brass players are afraid to talk about it because you don't see it yeah. coming. You don't know. And so if you start talking about it, well, now all of a sudden, you know, you're in your own head about it and, oh my God, it's going to happen to me. And like, I get that. But I think that also for the, in undergrad was really sort of like isolating for me because again, this was the, you know, the first time that somebody talked openly about it was when I spoke to Jan and it wasn't that, you know, Pat was, not talking about it. We just didn't know what it was, but um, I don't know. And Pat, I remember telling me, he was like, okay, so once I got my diagnosis from Jan and we were gonna work on it, he was like, okay, there's gonna be, you know, you're gonna have several reactions when you tell people this. Some people are gonna be like matronly, motherly, wanna like help you through it. And some people are gonna be, wanna be distant and not wanna discuss it and not wanna get in their head about it. And he was like, just be ready for both because they're both gonna happen. So, yeah. Yeah. So then t take us through to where it became a, maybe this isn't a thing I want to keep fighting anymore towards then I, cause yeah. I know you were gigging, you were freelancing. I feel like you had gigs in Chicago, like things weren't maybe exactly where you wanted yeah. them to be, but they were sort of happening. And so how did you go from, I know you, I know that you at some point sold your horn, you know? So like, it, right. it's like, where, how do we get from, I'm still trying to do this and fight this thing to, I've decided it's just not going to happen and I'll pursue other opportunities. Right. So, okay. I'll try and fast forward a little bit. So when worked with Jan, her work is very specific and there's only, we only really did a few things. It was a lot of like sitting in a chair in a room, blowing at a candle across the room. We did that for like eight hours straight, straight, eight hours straight of blowing at a candle across the room. So basically what she does is she reteaches your brain how to play your instrument, but just reminds your body how simple, how absolutely simple brass playing should be, right? You breathe, you know, I don't know what the number, 10,000 times a day or something, it's less than that, but some crazy amount. And you're just doing that through a tube and you're making a raspberry, which a one-year-old can do. Like, that's all yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. And it's like entirely led by the concept in your brain of like what sound you want to come out and the rest just happens. Right. Very sort of like Jacobs and yeah. Sure. Um, but super, super simple. And so I went and worked with her for a week, um, super intensive, eight hours a day. And then I would go watch her teach at night and just observe her lessons. So we did 12 hours a day. Um, and then I came back and I was working on some like really basic stuff and feeling incredible. Feeling incredible about my sound, about my playing, about like, there's a way out of this. I played a senior recital like two months later and 
I have the recording and still to this day, like some of my favorite playing I've ever done and sound was great. And um, so it was good. And then I stuck around Jens Lindemann, who was the head of the brass department. He invited me to stay at UCLA to do a master's. He was like, you should stay. We want to you know, continue this work and you're doing great, whatever. So I stayed for a year, ended up going to Northwestern. Um, and Gail, obviously in my audition, I, I talked to Gail about this a little bit. And she kind of like you was like, well, I had no idea. You played a great audition. It's not something, you know, but I was like, well, I'm not trying to hide anything. It was just like, I, you know, I think, and so we had a great conversation about it. Um, and you're right. I mean, when I was in school, um, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, of these playing issues. I was feeling really good. Um, you know, we had, we played some incredible concerts that recording the sweetie yeah. is great. Um, I, and I took two auditions while I was in school didn't advance at either one of them, but um, was like doing the thing. I was doing the rat race thing. We're not rat race, but you know what I mean? Like I do. Yeah. Do, yeah. I mean, you're in that environment at Northwestern and everybody's taking auditions. Everybody's, you know, not again, it's a supportive environment where people want to play for you and help and whatever. But um, it wasn't until I got out of school and I didn't have like Gail Williams and Bill Barnowitz and John Bowen, like, always in my brain when I was like left to my own devices that I started having the same issues. Mm. Um, same stuff was coming back, same sort of sensations, same sort of weird things. But it was also, that was the year that I got into civic full time. And I was like, okay, well I want to play in civic. And so I actually told Dan, that's not true. I, I asked Dan Gingrich who did all the seating if he would, be willing to put me on second and fourth. And I fudged a little bit. I was like, cause I want to get better low horn player. Um, but it was really so I could hide. And also I like being a second horn player, but it was just like, it was sort of, um, but the very first civic concert, it was before I had been ha had this conversation, he put me on principal. So I played principal for the first concert at civic. It was all Shostakovich. Um, and like hate Kevin Hazeltine was playing second to me, which is hilarious to me now. Um, <laughs> Cause he's a beast. Yeah. Um, and I remember all the rehearsals, like I had, I was having a lot of flashbacks to youth orchestra of like, just scared, being scared instead of being confident, being scared. And I was like, you know, this is only a year out of school. I was still playing pretty well, but I don't know. And then in the concert, luckily, like it was, it was great. It was a really good concert, but that was the last time I played principal in Civic. Um, and after a year and a half as a full-time member in Civic, um, it got to the point we were doing the Brandenburg Concertos, Concerti, excuse me. Um, <laughs> uh, we were doing the Brandenburg Concerti with Yo-Yo and I was playing. Who? Who is that? Uh, sorry, uh, Cho-Cho. <laughs> With Yo-Yo Ma. And uh, I was playing with Shelby Newton. <laughs> yeah. We were playing Brandenburg one. She was playing first. I was playing second. And I remember thinking in the first rehearsal, Yo-Yo was standing next to me. And I was, can I say shit in the bed on this? I was pooping the bed. Um, <laughs> That's the third time you've said shit in this. An S word? Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's okay. 
Um, <laughs> I remember thinking like, holy crap, I am pooping the bed and Yo-Yo Ma is like four inches off the end of my bell. And um, I remember writing after that rehearsal, I wrote an email to Molly, who was the orchestra manager. Um, and I just laid it all on the table. I told her everything that was happening. She was the first person at Civic I had actually told about this. Uh, and I, I, I dropped out of that concert. I took it off. Uh, I was like, I can't play Brandenburg Concerto right now. Um, so then I had a conversation with Dan Gingrich and he was, he called me right away after I emailed him. He was so unbelievably supportive. And I regret to this day that I didn't tell him right when I started. Yeah. Because he's like, he was like, oh my God, we could have, we could have worked on this. You could have played for me. We could have worked all kinds of stuff out. I would love to have, you know, helped you through this. Um, but at that point it was, I was again in that headspace of survival, which wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, and so I kept taking each, each civic concert that would come, I would decide, do I want to do this? And then I would, I would withdraw. Um, and at the same time I was playing for Gail. I was super honest with her. I was going up to her house twice a week and we were playing, you know, she would leave teaching me at Northwestern. She would leave on her lunch break, come home, teach me for like 90 minutes and then go back to Northwestern and teach again. And that woman, she was incredible. She was like, she was just like, I want, I want to help you through this. Um, and I just kept thinking like, why am I fighting this again? Why, why, why am I doing this? Yeah. You know, I would pick up the horn. I would put away the horn the night before angry because I, you know, I couldn't even survive a practice session with etudes. And then I'd go to look at it in the morning and be like, all right, here we go. And it was just like, <laughs> this brings me no joy anymore. This, you know, only brings me fear and, <laughs> you know, embarrassment and, I was like, what the heck am I doing? So I didn't play, obviously, in Civic for the rest of that season. Um, Shelby ended up sort of like taking my spot, which was great because Shelby's great. Um, and the last concert I played was in the Tetons. Gail asked me if I wanted to play fourth on Strauss' Four Last Songs with Renee Fleming. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't turn down that. Like, you know, one of my favorite pieces is like her piece that she sings. Ada DeVar was conducting and it was like Gail Williams and Haley Hoops and Nancy Goodall. It's an incredible section. And and she even said, Gail was like, she was like, I know that, you know, you're, you're not playing a lot right now. Like, are you comfortable? I'll put you on fourth. You don't have to play everything. And I was like, yeah, I want to do it. So I played that concert. It went fine. You know, there's some fourth horn solos in the four last songs. Um, that were fine. And uh, I put the horn away after that concert and I didn't, I never took it out again. That was July 25th, 2015. Um, wow. And then I worked the rest of that summer in the Tetons, came back to Chicago and was working at a restaurant and applying to arts admin jobs. I wanted to work for Chicago Symphony at the time. Um, they didn't really have anything open that was going to work for me, but um, I was applying at Lyric. I was applying at Music of the Broke at anywhere I could work in Chicago and still sort of like be in the field, but not have to play horn. 
Uh, and then the sort of end of the story is that in March of that following year, so this is now, I had not played my horn since July. In March of the following year, I remember waking up in Chicago and like sitting up in bed and my horn case was like in the corner of my room. And I was just like, it's time. I was like, I haven't opened the thing in eight months. It's a really nice instrument that's now just like corroding. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, hey, I was playing a hill at the time and he's got a five-year wait list. And I was like, somebody should be playing this instrument. Uh, so I talked to Gail and she was bummed, but was also like supportive. She was like, I get it. Like, I, you know, she's like, yeah. this isn't the end. It just means this is the end of this thing. Um, so I sold my horn to one of her DMA students. Um, and that's that. And then how long after she was gone. the, the Tetons, the full-time thing in the Tetons where you moved to Jackson hole? When, when did that come about? So then, um, so that was in March. Uh, and then I worked that summer in the Tetons, which was uh, March of 16. And then, um, that at the end of that summer, the CEO, he was like, Greg, I don't know what's going on. What's going on with your life, but we would love to have you come out and work here full time. Um, they kind of created a position for me, sort of. Um, and so it just, everything kind of lined up. Yeah. Uh, I went back to Chicago, uh, in September and then decided to move out of the house or out of that, you know, the Pridmore and the giant house we lived in. And, um, it just worked out because I had also at the same time been offered general manager of the stained glass in Evanston, that restaurant. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I can, I love working in the restaurant. The money was good. And I was like, okay, if I take this job, like this is a career move. I'm now like working in food service for a while, or I could keep doing this thing I love, which I've devoted 20 years of my life to like being in the music world and take a chance and like, move to a small town in the middle of nowhere and do that. Um, and so that's what I did. Yeah. So this story that you've painted of, I did the thing everybody else did. And then circumstances basically beyond your control. Maybe you can draw a line of all of these things that maybe if I didn't do this, would it have happened? Or maybe if this didn't happen, you know, the what ifs, but right. We've had this line now where it's led you to this life where uh, I you seem to be you seem to be happy you seem to enjoy your job it's awesome you're interacting you're like with the one of the best orchestras in the world um, what perspective and sort of like what I guess what perspective you feel like you've gained through going through all of this on what your position is now and what things do you feel like people not that they need to know, but do you wish like you, you would have known a long time ago, this kind of idea, we were talking about identity, which is kind of where I'm headed, right. but just like what perspective do you think you have that is unique to your situation, your life experience that um, you're glad that you have almost if you are? Yeah. Well, going back to identity, I think, I mean, again, I know that you, you talked about that, like you felt that way a lot about like, you know, if, if you're a bad trumpet player, you're a bad person. Or like, if you're not a good trumpet player, you haven't succeeded or you're not worth anything. Um, that I think is super, super important because if you're going to be a professional musician, 
you're not you're going to have bad concerts. You're going to have things that are not going to go your way. And that doesn't mean that like that doesn't invalidate. It doesn't like make you less of a person because you're not, you know, you didn't play spectacularly last night or I don't know. I just think that's such like a dangerous thing. And I mean, I definitely I really struggled with that because when I was leaving when I was, you know, sort of like phasing out of Civic, it was like, again, it was a relief for part of it because I was like, okay, now I don't have to suffer through horn playing. But what I really struggled with was all of my friends are in Civic. I love that environment of being in an orchestra that's collaborative. You're with your colleagues, everybody's playing well. It's so much fun to be in that environment where you're creating together and like producing this like incredible sound in the space. And I, that I think was, that was going to be the hardest thing for me was leaving that environment. And then it turns out that I actually didn't have to leave that environment. I yeah, still right. work in that same creative space. Um, again, the, you know, every orchestra has got politic things, but like the orchestra here is, the brass players in particular are there's such like a sense of community and family and like I I'm not I'm not a brass player anymore really and I don't play anywhere near that level but like I still feel like I could be part of this community and yeah um I don't know I also had to come to terms with the fact that like all these people that I feel so connected to on stage were also friends outside of orchestra so when we're not rehearsing, we can hang out and I can still feel connected to people. And so, again, I think that's so important, being able to, like, separate what you do as a job or, you know, on stage from, like, who you are as a person. Like, it's OK to not have them be, like, directly related. And I don't think that anybody can in. I don't think anybody can fully, like, compartmentalize, you know, your two halves of your life, but I don't know. I think that's really important. So, yeah. Do you, do you think that, or were you aware of any times where expectations that people had of you, that you are a horn player and now that you're not, maybe they saw you differently or like, what was, what reactions have you gotten from people that are like, I've sold my horn because of this thing. And now I'm going to do this. Like, we go, we, we come to know people for what we know. Right. And right. we have this expectation that they will always be that. So what kinds of reactions do you feel like you, um, experienced, uh, and how did you deal with that? Well, again, I remember distinctly, I remember having this conversation with my mom where I told her, like, if I'm not a horn player, what am I? I, I mean, again, I, I, at that point had spent, you know, 18 or 17 years of my life devoted to this one specific thing, this like super niche thing. And I was like, I don't do that now. What the hell do I do? Like, I don't, she was like, you can do anything. It doesn't matter. Like you're Greg, you're not like horn player named. I mean, it's just like it, that's not important. But I mean, it took, it took some time for me. And even to this day, people, when I get introduced when I'm introducing people backstage or like when a musician is introducing me to somebody else. Oh, Greg, Greg used to be a horn player. I went to Northwestern for horn. That's just like how they sort of like categorize people. Um, 
And I always laugh at that because I haven't, I have not played a horn since July of 2015. I held one like eight months ago. I held Daniel Hawkins horn. It was the first time I'd held a horn in five years. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. There was a second part to your question that I wanted to answer. No, I have a new one now. Uh, what? Oh, okay. It's all right. So when you meet people now that know you as artistic liaison of the San Francisco Symphony or with your prior position with Jacksonville and they don't know your history yeah. and they see you for who you are now, what's that feeling like versus people who have such a history who still view you through this old lens? Is it like refreshing? Is it nice? Is it weird? Like, are you used to it? What's that like? Um, it's, I don't know about like refreshing. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, even to this day, when people find out, cause you talk to people long enough, they want to know where you went to school. Oh, you studied music. Oh my God. What instrument do you play? It's always the first thing. Um, and I give them like the three sentence answer. I used to do this. I sold my horn because of an injury. Oh, people are always like so devastated for me. And I've now heard this story. I've told the story so many times that I always say, oh, it was five years ago. Like, it's fine. I'm not, I'm not like sad about it. And they're like, oh, but that's so sad. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I can see how, yes, five years ago, I was devastated and it was a big process, but I, I it's like, this is going to be weird, but it's like, it's like coming out to people like, you know, this is a weird correlation, but when you come out to people, it's like, for them, that's the one time you're going to come out to them. But for me, I've, right. every person I've ever met, I've had to come out to in some sense. Right. So like, it becomes like old hat. You tell the same story over and over again. But for that person, it's like a really special moment. Oh, Greg came out to me. Or, you know, so I've told this like injury story a lot and people are always want to be sort of like, oh, you devoted so much of your life and now it's gone. Like, no, that's not. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing now? Like, that's not how it is. But um, I think there's a lot of aspects of, I mean, you know me. I, I, I listen to a lot of music. I own a lot of scores. Um, it was always very important to me to, or not just important, just fascinating, interesting to me to, listen to as much repertoire as possible and study repertoire. I'll never forget, you know, the story I'm going to tell. I was about to tell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell I, we, Greg and I, we, we, we have this sort of inside story of, it was at Northwestern. We were rehearsing Mahler three for an excerpt class, or maybe it was for the actual piece when they performed it. And then the third movement, there's a discrepancy between like the trumpet part and what this and what the score is, or maybe there's different additions and so recordings. There's a lick that goes up to a C, but on the part it goes up to a B or something like that. And so I was saying something to whoever was playing it that, oh, well, there's this difference here, this discrepancy. And Greg's like, oh yeah, I know that part. And I was like, you don't know anything about the trumpet. <laughs> I just like was an ass, you know? And then you like, I feel like you just were like, it's like this first trump, like third trumpet part. Yeah. It's like movement three, this measure, yeah. this note. I was like, oh my God, Greg knows way more than I do. And I, I had to apologize, <laughs> of course. It's the, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, you schooled me. In that moment, well, it's like I, I, I could have learned right there what took me many more years to learn, which is like I'm operating personally. I operated on I have a fair amount of talent and hard work that has gotten me by. But there are people who are actually putting in the work to like know. <laughs> and it took me a lot longer than that to learn that I can, yeah. I can learn, too. I just have to do that kind of work as well. And it would probably benefit me to do that. Right, right. But you were doing that uh, all the time. Well, and I, I, I just, again, I thought that was, I thought it was so important to, to be, in order to like make you a good colleague on stage, to know, to know things that are happening around you. I mean, obviously I'm not a conductor and the, the score to Mahler 3 is daunting, but like just to even have like a little bit of context of like, oh shoot, like. I'm playing with like the back of the violas here. That's awesome. Okay. Now I can like listen left and like, you know, do that. And, um, what I was going to say is that sort of, um, has been transferable now because, um, what I want to do eventually at the symphony is get into programming. Um, so having extensive knowledge of repertoire or trying to build a knowledge of repertoire is really useful. Um, for having conversations and being able to discuss stuff that you, you know, have studied and looked at and know about and to know how long all the Mahler symphonies are on average and how many horns are in each and how many, you know, is there bass oboe in this? And is there that kind of stuff that's like, I don't know. I feel like all that work that I did in school, sort of like score setting for pieces that we were playing is now sort of like, I get to reap rewards of just like having that like sort of baseline knowledge. So. Yeah, it's. An, I was reading this book, I've talked about it a lot recently, called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Yep. And she talks about how effort counts twice over talent. So talent's like, well, I'm good at this thing. I'll only produce whatever. But when we do it through effort to learn and to struggle, not only do we learn and we get better, but then we have the fruit of all of that work that's still right. there. So like you studied scores, so maybe you have a better familiarity with how to approach it, but then you also have all of the information you learned. So it's right. like a double sort of impact of the benefit that you get from it. And then clearly you've just found a way. And it sounds what's awesome for me to hear is it's not something you inherently like sought out, but it's a way that you sort of life course corrected itself a little bit. If you want to think of it that way, yeah, if, you know, absolutely. If, if it's the universe or if it's God, like however people think about it, but it's the right. same sort of concept that like we have, you found a way to combine all of these things, but it sort of came to you and you were just open to this, this new way that your life could go. And now you're doing the thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting way to, to put it. And I think that's completely true. Like, no, I did not like, this wasn't a job that I sought out, but it just sort of, as you say, like course corrected. And now I'm in a position and, and an organization that has been very honest with me that they value me and that they want me to be here for a while and they want to expand my role and they want to do this, and they want to do that. And um, it's, everything has like sort of worked out in that regard. And, you know, it's, <laughs> I always, this is ridiculous. There's a line in, uh, do you ever watch the West Wing? Did you watch the West Wing no. from like 10 years ago? No. <laughs> is that the next show I should watch? <laughs> oh my God. If you have the time, it's like a seven season, like yeah. 20 episodes a season. Um, she's walking into the white house and they ask her, she's like, you know, it just, it never gets old walking into the white house. And I legit feel that way every time I walk into Davies Hall. I'm just like, 
it's the cool. I'm still like a kid in a candy store that I get to work in this building and like backstage and with these artists and with this caliber of musician and this hall is beautiful. And every time I walk in there, I feel that way. And I hope that I don't lose that. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I mean, like, like most of my job is sitting backstage listening to rehearsals or I'll just bring my laptop into the hall and watch this world-class orchestra rehearse all day, every day. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a dream come true, man. It's so much fun. And then, you know, well, back in the before times, you put in all this work of organizing and everything. And then at the end of the week, you get to reap the benefit and like see MTT conduct Mahler six, four times on a weekend. It was just like, it's the best. It's awesome. Man, that's awesome. I'm really happy. Two things. One that I will remember this, um, this story this time. <laughs> and, um, but also that other people get to hear your voice and hear you talk about this. It's, it's encouraging. And for me, it's inspiring that you, you dealt with the hard stuff. You, it seems like you allowed yourself to sit in it and ask questions and you tried. It's not like you just gave up immediately. You gave yep. it its due, but ultimately you did, were able to say, you know, I've sat in this. It's not bringing me joy. I feel like you ask those kinds of questions. That's like, why am I doing what I'm doing if it's not, if it's not filling me up? And right. I think there's other people out there that might feel the same way. Maybe they're not quite to the same degree of it's not the right thing, but right. asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Is it for somebody else? Is it for me? Is it what's right. expect I feel is expected of me? I think asking those questions can lead us into different sort of states of being. Even if we're doing the same thing, we have a different sort of perspective on why we're doing it, which can be more filling. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Greg. I don't know if there's anything else that you have to sort of like throw We talk all day about this stuff, but like, I, I think we, we yeah. covered a lot today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you for, again, for doing this. If people think to themselves, Greg Hicks, I got to know more about this guy. I want to talk to him. Is there any way that people can get a hold of you to say, I have questions about this. I feel like I'm going through something you went through and I would like somebody to bounce some ideas off of or anything like that. Are there ways that people can get a hold of you? Uh, I mean, I don't know. How, how do people usually answer that? Facebook? I'm on Facebook. Instagram. This is my way of saying, are you comfortable with saying I'm on Facebook? I'm on Instagram. Oh, yeah. Reach out to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. People can feel free to find me on Facebook and send me a message. H-I-X. I'm sure Ryan will put the... Uh, I can, all right. I'll do that. If you're... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I have like some people like me have like eight ways that you can now get yeah. in touch with me, you know? So I, I just, don't, I mean, I was going to say people can email me in my work email maybe, but that's a little weird. So. Yeah. yeah. Like, so Facebook or Instagram, um, I'm not putting yeah. words in your mouth, but uh, I imagine, I know Greg to be the kind of guy that will be happily help you in whatever way that he can. Feel free to put those words in my mouth. That's true. And um, I, there's Jenna Vangel. She had an injury. She actually worked with Jan as well. Um, so this is the second person I've um, heard say that they work with Jan with success, uh, yeah. at least short term, right, for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she was saying the same thing, that oftentimes you it's a lonely thing to go through because you don't want to talk about it. You don't think you can talk about it. You don't want other people to know you're struggling because they might view you differently. But there is right. a community of people out there that that have gone through things. And so this is possibly a way for those of you out there who are struggling to find some support, possibly. Right. Yeah, that's one quickly. That's one thing that we didn't talk about was the like when I was freelancing in Chicago 
and going through this, you don't want anyone to know because part of my income was based on being called for stuff. And if you people know that you're struggling, it's nothing personal, but like, why would they hire the horn player who's like maybe not going to be able to do the job and they can hire somebody else? So right. it's this like really, as she, as your friend said, like it's it can be lonely because you you have to do it alone in that sort of like scary. Well, I don't want to screw up my, you know, what if I don't get called again? And yeah. Anyway, I'm sure the mind games cool. can be it's, overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, if you need to get in touch with me, everybody knows how to do it, but I have to say it. It's that's not spit.com at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you learned something, you had any feelings whatsoever, if you want to give this a like, or uh, whoop, I'm not there yet. Where am I? Uh, to do a rating and a review on iTunes, that would help me out. That would help people find the podcast. Also, sharing it on social media would help out a lot as well. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Always remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>